we had to get very good at doing more repairs and essentially going out and treating customers well and then not having callbacks for doing shoddy work. The other thing that changes that's really interesting is the marketing dynamics in an industry change. So when a recession hits, generally a lot of companies, not just in trades, everywhere, pull back on marketing. So the cost of a lead actually goes down. You're listening to Toolbox for the Trades, brought to you by Service Titan, a podcast for top service professionals where we interview leaders for their best tips and tricks of the trades. Learn how industry trailblazers stay ahead of the competition and how you too can be at the forefront of an industry. Let's jump in. Hello, contractors, and welcome to the Toolbox for the Trades, the show where we share the top tricks, tips, and tactics from top service professionals worldwide. Today, I'm speaking with Colin Hathaway, the owner of Guardian Roofing and the founder CEO of The Flint Group, a group of companies netting $100 million in revenue. Colin shared how he weathered the Great Recession of 2008, how service owners can prepare for market changes to keep their businesses resilient, the current private equity trends he sees in the trades, and why you should prioritize your mental health. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Colin Hathaway, you are the owner of Guardian Roofing and the founder and CEO of the Flint Group, which has a combined revenue of $100 million. I know you've been working in the trades for a long time, so I'm going to start this podcast the way I normally do, which is how did you get into the trades? Oh, thanks. It's awesome to be here and thrilling. I'm, we, I met uh, Vahe and Ara a decade ago when they were just starting off. So it's so neat to see the progress of the company. And I really appreciate the chance to talk with you. Um, so how I got in the trades, it's a little bit of circu- circuitous. Um, I spent the, so I had a background in private equity. I spent my first three years as basically a sourcing guy, which means I would talk to the business brokers who call all the owners that would listen to this podcast or investment bankers, or even the business owners themselves talking about what it would be like if they sold their business. I, so I knew how to find companies. I sort of knew how to buy them. I didn't really know anything about running companies. And in 2007, I came out of business school and thought it would be neat to go and start a business that would buy small companies, companies with less, less than 3 million of profit. And I had no premonition that I would be involved in the trades, let alone for 15 plus years now. But right out of the gate, I found two businesses to buy. One was in Las Vegas that made the little dollar bill changers for slot machines and Coke machines. And one was a small plumbing company in Sacramento called Bonnie Plumbing. In small, it was 7 million of revenue. I didn't know anything about the space. It was all residential, all plumbing. And I, I really couldn't do two, two oper- deals. So I said, well, I'm, I'm gonna go after Bonnie. And my friends thought I was insane. I mean, why, why in the world would you buy a, a residential company in Sacramento? I said, well, it's, it's close. It's close to where we live. We were living in San Francisco, so I could drive there in less than two hours. Candy and Mark Bonney are two of the most phenomenal people and founders ever. And they were going to keep 20% and help me run it. And I said, well, you know, all, all you guys say that recession's coming. I'm pretty sure toilets still break in a recession. And they're like, that's the dumbest thing I've they said some F-bombs, dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I, I said, I know, but I, I, I don't really have like a backup plan. So I'm just going to do it. And so we ended up buying 80% of Bonnie Plumbing, 
to work with the Bonnies in March of 08. And two weeks later, Bear Stearns went bankrupt and the Great Recession started. And we can talk more about the recession, but I mean, this just started my career in the trades. Um, 2011, I ended up buying uh, a little Dallas-based HVAC company called Berkey's that was doing about $9 million of revenue. And nine months later, bought a company called Abacus in Houston, was doing $9 million of plumbing only. That's like 2012 is when I sort of figured out the trades a little bit and all our companies just took off. They grew 100 to 250% in like three and a half years. And that little group in Texas, Dallas and Houston, we, we got to about $50 million. We bought Parker & Sons in Phoenix with a, another phenomenal founder, Paul Kelly. Um, and uh, so we were at $100 million. At that time, uh, the investor group that had backed me said, we want to sell. And I said, I don't want to sell. And they said, cool, we're selling anyways. So we ended up partnering up with this company called Cool Ray in Atlanta and got to about $150 million and sold uh, for $200 million back in uh, 2016. And that's, that's basically the precursor to what is now the Wrench Group. Shortly after that, the New York private equity firm that bought the Wrench Group said, you have to move, Colin, if you want to stay involved. And I didn't want to move. So they handed me my walking papers. And I still own part of the company. It was a big bummer because I had the best partners, Paul Kelly at Parker and Sons, Alan O'Neill at Abacus. And they tr doubled or tripled their businesses in the next three years, doubled their, all their businesses. And the Wrench CEO, Ken Haynes, did a great job. And then the company sold for four almost four times more than what we sold for in 16, which sort of validated my premonition we shouldn't have sold. Uh, but I was newly unemployed, didn't know what to do. So I ended up buying a roofing company. As you mentioned, Guardian Roofing. I, I partnered up with another husband and wife, uh, Lori and Matt Swanson, who are also amazing and um, bought a big chunk of that business. It was doing about 10 million of sales. And now we'll hit 30 million this year, uh, five and a half years in. Profits are up like 800%. And, uh, and then a, three years ago, I, I started a group called the Flint Group, which was essentially a chance for me to rebuild a group of plumbing and air conditioning companies. Uh, I raised $30 million and partnered up with a really great operator uh, named Trevor Flanagan. And this time I had a little more experience and I made sure that there was no scenario where the company would be sold without my um, go ahead, which is something that was really important to me. And so that brings us to today. Now, as you mentioned, Flint's going to be a hundred million in revenue. We have 525 employees and yeah, it's been a, it's been a heck of a ride. I mean, I think, over the last 15 years, we've created over, I was trying to figure it out, created probably 500 or 600 jobs and built some of the best companies. And work, I've had the good fortune to work with some amazing founders. And it's been, it's been a really, really fun ride. That's incredible. What a wonderful and succinct summary of all of the impact you've made in the trades. And I'm actually really excited to have you because two episodes before this one, I believe, we have a new service entrepreneur named Rick Baza who just bought a plumbing company in San Diego. And kind of two episodes later, we have you and you're like, and this is what I've done in 10 years. And just like you had a finance background, kind of a PE background. And I just love that you chose the trades as the industry you wanted to work in. But you mentioned that a recession was looming. This was 2007, 2008. And you smartly thought, well, everyone's going to get their toilet replaced or fixed if right. they have to. So one thing I want to focus on in today's conversation is learnings from 2008 and the Great Recession around that time. Because as everybody who's plugged into the news right now knows, material costs are rising. Stuff is really expensive. <laughs> and yeah. the word keeps getting whispered around in spaces. And we don't want to jinx it here, but we want to 
highlight some opportunities that this can provide. And I would love to hear from your perspective, especially as someone who came into plumbing right before the recession, didn't really know anything about it and how you survived and was able to make the impressive career that you have now. So just tell me, how did that work out for you, for you purchasing that company? And then two weeks later, boom, recession. Yeah. I mean, it was terrifying. Most of the folks I work with now are 35 and under. They've never worked in a time period where they have experienced a recession. I managed to graduate college right into the dot-com recession, uh, which hit the Bay Area. Stan I graduated from Stanford and, and got the whole area got smoked. There was no U-Haul trucks left because everyone was taking them to leave the area. It was terrible. And then the Great Recession hit and it was 10 times worse. So yeah, when the recession hit, we got an immediate test of the idea of whether toilets still broke. And it turns out they do. But the entire dynamic of the business changed. I mean, an example would be Mrs. Jones would have a toilet broken. We'd come out and we'd say, hey, we can fix it for 300 bucks. We can give you a new total toilet for a thousand bucks. We can replace all your toilets for 3000 bucks. And she'd say, just replace them all so they all match. And as soon as this hit, there was no $3,000 job. There was rarely a $1,000 job. She would just say, I don't even want to pay $300, but I'll do it. Just fix it. We had to adjust very quickly to the new market. I mean, I remember one time one of our CSRs called me and said, hey, do we take IOUs from the state of California? And I, I said, first of all, what are we doing doing work for the state? And second of all, like, we absolutely do not because the state was actually at, at risk of going bankrupt. So, no, we want cash. You know, the things that change the most notably are essentially lower ticket, fewer calls, especially initially, and, and higher close rate just because the ticket's lower typically it just kind of changed the dynamic of the business. And so we had to get very good at doing more repairs and essentially going out and treating customers well, and then not having callbacks for doing shoddy work. The other thing that changes that's really interesting is the marketing dynamics in an industry change. So when a recession hits, generally a lot of companies, not just in trades everywhere, pull back on marketing. So the cost of a lead actually goes down. So the way we like to think of it is, you know, a cost per lead might be, let's just say for easy numbers, a hundred bucks. Well, it's now 50 bucks. Well, if you start, if you continue to spend around the same amount, you're going to get double the leads. The market's shrinking. You have to run more calls. Well, if you continue to be judicious with your spending, you can actually capture more of the market. And if you do this and you actually get a little bit bigger share of the smaller market, when the market rebounds, you're in much better position. And we saw this when COVID hit. I mean, COVID was a perfect 12-month recession. March of 20 through March of 21 was perfect. Call volume dropped. People didn't want you in their house. People didn't know what to think, so they wouldn't want to spend as much money. And then close rates went up, partly because they didn't want anybody else in their house. So they just like, just fix it and leave. But it, we actually created this Excel spreadsheet, the COVID tracker. And Trevor's like, is this going to work? I'm like, I don't know. Let's just see what happens. And it, it was a perfect recession where all those things happened. And then through a combination of better training and our guys giving better options, we started to see some of the ticket go up, plus the call volume rebounded, and it kind of came back all in about 12 months. So, you know, we, these are not recession-proof companies. A lot of people seem to think they are. They're recession-resistant. They're different. Uh, it, recessions are brutal. It was really hard. It was super scary. There were, you know, a lot of days where we weren't sure which way was up or down. Um, but for a good business, particularly in the trades on the residential side, you have a chance to actually make your company infinitely better. And 
it's interesting. I'm glad I'm glad we're doing this because I actually went back and looked at our financial performance. My recollection was we only grew like two or three percent from 2008 to 10, but we actually grew 10 percent, 25 percent, and 10 percent. So I'd say all in all, when we came out of it, Bonnie was a much better company and was positioned for a lot more growth, but it was terrifying. I love that one, you were able to look back and see that the company did a lot better than you initially thought it did. That is really incredible during those years, 10% growth. Two things I heard in your answer, which is because Bonnie had that really solid foundation, those techs that really knew what they were doing and they were really focused on repairs, it sounds like there was just an easier transition into that. It's not like you had techs that were all focused on selling and then you had to kind of retweak their training and say, actually, you know, we're going to be doing this. But then I also love that you talked about the cost per lead and how that dropped. We definitely saw that in COVID. I did a webinar with a couple uh, small business owners early on who said, now is the time to buy ads. (laughs) Like they are so cheap right now and no one else is buying them. So I would love to talk about other opportunities that a recession provides, because I want to keep this light. What are some things that owners and operators should be thinking of right now? I mean, I think there's a bunch of different things and we're already trying to focus on it now just to be ahead of the game if and when this thing kind of goes sideways. We are emphasizing sort of the technical training. I think at least for Flint and, and to some extent Guardian roofing, all of us got thrown off a little bit by COVID in terms of having in-person technical training and sales training. And so getting back to the basics on training the technicians has been really important. Guardian roofing has put a huge emphasis on offering repair options and we're already seeing our product mix shift. And some of that's through our own marketing and sales channel, but a lot of that's also the consumer starting to change where they don't want to spend 30 grand or 25 grand. They're more than happy to spend eight. And so just getting ready for that now will be helpful for when more and more consumers start to feel that pain a little bit. I think financing is a huge deal. Helping consumers pay for options. I mean, consumer debt, personal debt is, is skyrocketing. And folks really need what we offer but they're going to have a harder time paying for it. When I first bought Guardian Roofing, we didn't have any financing options. I remember a sales guy said, oh, people save for their roof. And I said, no one saves for a roof. Like, that's crazy. And so it took us about six to 12 months to get very good at offering financing for, for customers. And now it's offering financing not just for a whole roof or a giant HVAC system. It's repairs down to 1000 bucks. Most Americans don't have a ton of disposable income just sitting around hoping that they can fix a toilet. So whether it's service finance or Green Sky or Wells Fargo or some of those other really good options, just getting adept at that now, I think, is really important. Or at least that's what we're putting a lot of emphasis on. But I guess we look at it like there's three real opportunities. One is hiring. I mean, hiring technicians continues to be one of the most difficult challenges our industry faces. There will be companies that misjudge the strength of their business or the market, and they will either have problems financially or they won't provide sufficient leads for their technicians. And most of our businesses will be there to offer them opportunity. Um, I remember during the recession, I met with one of our competitors in Seattle. Well, we didn't have something in Seattle now, but we have a company here called Southwest Plumbing. And one of our competitors um, had had some trouble. And I remember going to a training and it was a ragtag bunch of folks in this training. And I said, how did you handle the recession? He said, oh, it was easy. I just I cut out the uniform stipend and I cut healthcare. And I was like, oh, well, that probably explains why your tech group looks like it does. It has attracted a certain type of person that is different than maybe what you know we would envision if we owned that company. So that's one way, you know, that's one option. There are certain people at that company will leave and come to somewhere like our business that offers better healthcare benefits or leads or uniforms. 
Another option that I think people could take advantage of is this market share growth, like we talked about. You know, I think a small, I, again, in our world, we bought Southwest Plumbing in Seattle in May of 20, so right at the height of COVID. Their current marketing manager had increased marketing spend from 9% to 26% while marketing costs were going down. So I said, what are, what are you doing? And he said, well, we got to have leads for the techs. I said, well, I've got Guardian Roofing is down the street and they just decreased their marketing spend and are having more leads than they can, they can handle. And he said, well, you got to spend. And I, I, was, I was like, man, we can't even go to those calls. So anyway, he doesn't work with us anymore. But you, you know, there's ample opportunity if you're just very diligent about it. And then there's operational improvement, which I think can sometimes get a bad rap, but you can improve your process and your team from front to back, you know, from the technician side of the office space. You can upgrade with better employees. Uh, you can make sure folks are efficient and really ensure that the folks that are on your team really believe in the mission and want to be part of the company long-term. And so you can come out of it much stronger. When you said that there was a competitor you spoke to who said, oh yeah, I took rid of, I got rid of the uniform stipend and I got rid of their healthcare. I'm like, oh, that that's horrible. So you're going to be episode yes. 99 of this podcast. All right. And no matter how I try to talk about other things, it always comes down to culture and creating a space where your technicians, your team feel like they're being cared, uh, they're being cared for and that they align with your mission. And I cannot imagine what happened to that company once the economy bounced back. They probably, all of those technicians definitely jumped ship and went for better, better places to work. The culture of this particular company, I would say was not strong in my belief, but it just got that much worse. Right. And it's very hard to fix culture. To me, they set themselves up for like a two to three to five year rebuild. And I'm not sure they fully recovered still. You've mentioned now, we know Guardian and the Flint Group are your two big entities right now, but you've mentioned, you know, you've purchased and worked with so many companies around the country. What are you doing today, given the, again, inflation, uh, interest rates increasing and the cost of materials? What are you doing today uh, to secure your businesses for the next year, the next two years? There's really three things that we focused on. I mean, one... The, I talked to Trevor, the Flint, my partner and the CEO at Flint, and said, hey, if, there's, if there is one thing we do this year uh, that would be the most important thing is figure out how to make our pricing more dynamic. Uh, when I first bought Bonnie in 2008, we would, we would raise our prices 3 to 5% once a year, and it was just kind of like the way, the way that we did things. Now we have a much better dynamic pricing model where we can adjust to the changes in material cost or labor very quickly, and it's super hard. I mean, there is no easy button for this, you know, to get it set up and working with Service Titan and the ability to sort of cha change on a dime and not just do it once a year or once a month, but just as prices change, we're now much better positioned to do that versus just kind of making a unilateral, hey, we're going to raise prices 10% or 15, which does work, but is not really that efficient and it is not really something you can do always. The other thing is we've, we've been a lot better at trying to find vendors and partners who are willing to work with us and be better about transparency and pricing. And we've had some part, new, new partners, particularly on the material side, who stepped up and said, we want to be with Flint for a really long time. And same with, with Guardian Roofing. And we would like them to do very well and make a ton of money because if they do, like they're going to be around and provide great service. But they've been very transparent and helpful, in particular, um, as we faced material shortages the last few years. So we've just made some better choices around who we work with. Um, 
and, and, and we understand like the exogenous factors around COVID and supply chain, everyone's kind of got them, but hey, just communicate what it is. And then if you say you're gonna do it, do your best to do it, explain why not, move on. And then the last thing is a little bit murkier, the deal structure and debt structure in a roll up or a group of companies is I think very important. So a lot of these new roll ups or consolidators are using a ton of debt, higher ratios of debt than I've ever seen to buy companies. And, the, and they're doing it because they're anticipating that someone will be there to pay them more for their business and that the debt won't ever be a problem because they'll pay it off quickly by selling the company. So Guardian has no debt and Flint has used less debt on purpose to be nimble and safe. And, and we just had someone tell us we had 40 to 60% less debt than companies of our size. Um, and it just means when interest rates rise, we're a lot less susceptible to the cost of that. And it, we won't feel the pressure to cut costs. And I think that's going to affect some of these, some of these groups. And I just don't know if it, it's just not something that's typically very transparent. So I think that's something that folks may want to consider if, if they're able to. This is the part where if I was Adam McKay, I would cut this video off and feature a gorgeous celebrity celebrity to just explain what you said in layman's terms, which you actually, you did, you explained it in layman's terms. So we don't need the celebrity. We'll get them out of there. For anyone who's like, what the heck is Jackie talking about? I am talking about the big short, which was an Adam McKay production, I believe. Um, and this was the movie that was all about what happened in 2008 and why it happened. Everyone should watch the big short. Everyone should watch it. I watched it on the plane like a year ago because I was like, I feel like this is happening again. You should watch. You should read the book by Michael Lewis or just watch the movie again because it, it it's a little bit akin to what's happening right now. So what you're saying is there are some buyers in the space that, in your opinion, are taking out these massive loans with the idea that they can turn these businesses they're buying for a quick profit. But you're saying, hang on one second, this looks very familiar to what was happening in 2007. And I'm feeling a bubble. Uh, I think we're, it's happening. So if anyone's listening to this right now and is either in talks to be purchased by a PE group, has already been purchased by a PE group, and they're thinking, oh, crap, what would you say to them? Since you mentioned layman's, I'll just try and explain one element of it. Let's use this, this million dollar house example. If you buy a million dollar house and you put in a hundred grand and you borrow 900 grand and then the price goes up to a million two and you sell it, you have a million two in your pocket, you pay off the 900 grand of debt and you have $300,000. So you put a hundred grand in and you have 300 grand and you made three times your money. So that's great. If you buy a house for a million dollars with a hundred thousand dollars down and suddenly the price of the house is 800,000 or even let's just say 900,000 goes down 10%. You have 900,000, you owe the bank 900,000, you pay them 900,000 and you have $0 left, which means you lost hundred grand. There are folks who are offering to partner up with owners and say, hey, we'll be a great partner and we're gonna, we're gonna take your money you're keeping with us and we're gonna make you a ton of money. But because of the structure of their business, which again, is not always that transparent. If, if, the, if the end result isn't that you sell for more to somebody else down the road, it's conceivable the, the, the equity that people keep in, the ownership they keep in goes down. It could go down to zero. But again, one of my companies has no debt and one doesn't have that much debt. And there's a, debt does serve a purpose. I mean, it's why people buy houses with mortgage. But too much of anything can typically end up being bad. 
particularly when market dynamics change. Somehow uh, I know more about how to purchase a house from that five, from that two, three minute explanation. I'm a, I'm born and raised in New York City, live in Los Angeles, haven't been a homeowner yet. Always a house guest, never a homeowner, but uh, that actually helped me. <laughs> yeah. Well, your landlord can uh, fix your water heater, so it's, it's fine. Being a renter yes. is pretty nice. It is pretty nice, especially when it's rent controlled. Hey, all right. Um, now, I want to move on a little bit from learnings from 2008, some caution to proceed with private equity now or some trends that you're seeing, given your experience. You know, we've had PE firms on this show. We've had different financial advisors who come on the show and talk about PE and the opportunity. So I thank you for coming in and bringing your opinion on that as well. When we first spoke and you kind of talked to me about what you wanted to talk about on the show, mental health came up and I am a mental health sucker. I love talking about it. I especially love talking about it as it relates to work. So you had a pretty massive health scare at a pretty young age. So tell me about that and what did you learn from it? Yesterday, it was actually the eight year anniversary. So I had a heart attack in the summer of 14 and I have you know, a genetic predisposition. I have high cholesterol, I've known about it since I was young. But the genesis of the heart attack is I had a very severe disagreement with a longtime mentor of mine who also happened to be my biggest investor at the time. And ultimately, you know, trust was broken between us and it was a really, really brutal time period. I mean, I lost connection and trust with someone important to me. Uh, I was threatened with legal action. Uh, I had no leverage. Financial security was at risk. And it was really at the point where we were building something pretty neat in Texas and Sacramento. And so, you know, in the end, it took weeks and weeks of discussions and deliberate deliberations, and we resolved the situation, but it was extremely stressful. And two weeks later, I had the heart attack. And, you know, I was very fortunate that the result wasn't worse. I responded quickly and knew what it was and chewed up baby aspirin and all this stuff, you know, but it was still the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life. And it was neat to be remembered reminded of it yesterday in some some ways I, I did say after the heart attack i felt immense gratitude but it's funny how it just sort of you go back to normal uh, a little too fast on that stuff wow thank you for sharing that that happened to you not too far away from an age i'm at so i have friends that age uh and it's kind of crazy you know in your 30s you still feel like you're invincible a little bit but i think that's just a really great example to show how what happens at work really impacts what your life looks like. And I think yeah. we're more starting to integrate that, that idea into everyday society in terms of, you know, some of the best companies providing the best uh, healthcare options and whatnot. I see a lot of different folks in the trades providing really excellent options for their team. But I would love to know, what are you doing now to keep your stressors at bay, especially considering, you know, you're dealing with loads of money, people's livelihoods. How do you keep everything separate to make sure that you're healthy and you're able to show up for your family, which I imagine is ultimately your biggest priority? I'll tell you my takeaways and then sort of how I've dealt with it. I mean, essentially, you know, stress will kill you for sure. Acute stress. I like you, I thought I was indestructible and, um, I mean, I still do, even though I'm eight years older, but also sort of permanent low-grade stress, just not that healthy for you. And there are times where, you know, stress can actually be helpful and endorphins rush and your adrenaline goes up and you kind of jam on something for a little bit. That's how you achieve greatness, but you just need to be acutely aware of it and more, I, I'm, you know, I think you just need to be attuned to sort of your mental and physical well-being. And then, 
you know, I think you got to pick the people you work with really carefully. I was a bit naive and a little too trusting. And when things went sideways, I was just unprepared. You know, you mentioned stress of, I don't know, managing a lot of money or, you know, the size of the business we're building. I mean, I just, I feel a lot more stress thinking about the well-being of our techs and staff and our key managers than I do about the money. Um, mm. I just think if we do right by our team and do right by the customers, the, the money usually works itself out. Um, and, I, and I've seen it work that way pretty well the last 15 years. And when we've started worrying about the money or the financial results, it's, it's when things tend to get derailed. I mean, you mentioned like the destruction of culture. I mean, there's no faster way than stopping to talk of talking less about the people and, and what matters to them and talking more about the numbers and KPIs and the financials. I mean, we talk about all this stuff, but if that becomes the only thing you talk about, things are going to be problematic for you fairly quickly. Oh, a hundred percent. Um, I love everything you said, especially going from the ups and downs, those really big peaks and valleys to more of just like a steady, like a steady rhythm. The most successful people I've talked to on this show have found a way to regulate themselves and to really remove themselves from that, that just stop and go, not that stop and go, but that just like relentless pressure. And I guarantee you, there's probably someone listening right now who's screaming at us, who's saying easy for you to say, Mr. $1 million revenue or you, or you, or you Jackie, who works for a service Titan, but right. what kind of advice would you give uh, folks who maybe are just starting up their business? Or what do you say to your employees when you notice that they are kind of suffering with the stuff that you used to suffer with? I totally understand why people would be frustrated by that saying, oh, you know, I had the time to fix it. And you're like, I don't have any time. And the reality is there are going to be periods where you just don't have the time. And for me, it's keeping in mind that most of these time periods where you're at max stress are finite you know, this too shall pass, like, you know, hey, I'm just going to get through this and then it can move on. Now, I do think you need to be somewhat deliberate about understanding, like, you can't just go from finite max stress to finite max stress, max stress to finite max stress, and then not never have like a plan to get some relief. Um, so I think there are ways, again, five minutes here or there, taking a walk, whatever, that, that I think people can do without having, you know, creating a huge impediment to their work when they're in the, in the midst of a huge grinding period, it is hard. You just have to be deliberate, you know, with our employees, it's been really interesting. Um, I mean, it's a blue collar space and certainly talking about mental health is not, um, something that everybody is on the top of everyone's list for, you know, activities for the day. Uh, and I'd say it's been, it's been tough. I mean, we've had a, we've had a number of folks commit suicide over the last 15 years. Um, I think there's still a real stigma around, you know, saying I'm feeling off or depressed or upset or this breakup's really affecting me or, you know, someone in my family passed away and I just, I'm just not myself. And, Cause it's kind of like the mantra of like, well, why worry about it? If I can solve it by working harder or I'll deal with mm-hmm. it later. And, and I think we've had a lot of discussions with our managers. And in fact, I was just talking with one of our companies last week with all the managers about giving feedback and feedback doesn't necessarily have to be like, Hey, you're doing bad or good. It's more like, how are you, how are you doing? How are you feeling? It's the first thing I ask when I sit down with any of our managers. How are you feeling? I'm fine. Okay. How are you doing? Pretty good. And I just try and like ask more questions to just understand really how, how it's going. And through that, it's, it's, it's hard. It's a lot of active listening, but you just ask a lot of questions and really understand how they are and where they are at that, you know, place in their work life or their personal life, you know, and it, 
I'd say we've done three things I think that have been helpful. One is we introduced uh, a service called Tiny Pulse. A friend of mine started this company up here and actually our team at Flint found it and wanted to use it. So I said, that's great. My buddy started it. And it's a very short sort of survey that you roll to your team to give you fairly um, active, consistent feedback on how they feel about various facets of your company. It's not perfect. And as you might, and I, you know, people are going to complain, but it does give us a ton of data and, and real time feedback on how they're feeling about certain elements of what we're doing so that we can choose whether to do something better or not. You know, if someone's upset about like the vending machine, like that may be an easy fix or maybe it's just something we don't worry about. But if someone's upset about, you know, feeling bullied, like we can hit sort of the, you know, the emergency button and say like, let's dig into that and figure out what's happening, who it is. And it's all anonymous. So it makes it a little tricky because we got to like, be like, Hey, would you mind telling us who you are? And they, sometimes they don't want to, but we try and figure out where, you know, where it is and how we can adjust things. You know, you mentioned healthcare. Healthcare is really important to me, obviously, because of some of my health stuff. Um, I would say it's still something that I would give us like a C plus on. We, we work really hard to offer good healthcare to our employees. When I first bought Bonnie, we offered full health care for all the employees and their families. And I just assumed that's what everyone did. It was not, mm -hmm. that's not what everyone does. And it's not, I don't know what Service Titans plan is, but it's not like working at Microsoft up here in Seattle or Amazon, where it's like, hey, we've got amazing health benefits and you can have six months maternity paternity. We don't offer anything close to that. That's why I gave us a C plus. Like in, in my perfect world, we would find a way to be able to offer like top class health care to all of our employees. And because it's so expensive and without it, you can really get in a pinch. I mean, there was a recent story about how I think it was like 25% of Americans have healthcare debt. I mean, even with healthcare, like a big vast majority of those people have healthcare and they're still in debt. So that's crummy. And I think we can do a better job. We as an industry, but also more, you know, I'm more focused on what we, we can do. And we try and find a way to offer folks the best services we can. And we're, honestly evaluating them very regularly. It's just, it's very tricky. The system is pretty broken and it's pretty expensive. And then the last thing is, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking to our team and I mean, I mentioned this, you know, how are you feeling? I was at one of our companies recently and I heard that one of our managers uh, had to leave work because he was throwing up because he was so upset and his, he was like red in the face from blood pressure. So now we fix one of the issues by removing uh, his manager, which you can't always do. But we sat down and we had like a pretty good talk where, well, I think it was good. I said, hey, I had a high blood pressure. I had a heart attack. And by the way, this is not kosher always in our industry. But, you know, after my heart attack, the doctor recommended anti-anxiety meds. And I took them and it helped a lot. And I'm not telling you to take them and, or not take them. I'm not telling you to like take blood pressure medication, but I'm telling you, if you're throwing up at work and you're uh, red in the face because your blood pressure is so high, you, you could have a serious event, which means you won't be able to provide for your family. You won't be here for your guys. So, so I would just encourage you to think about some options. We will help however you want. We can never talk about this again. We can talk about it whenever you want. But just trying to get some of those conversations out on the table, I think is really important. And I will also self-disclose, I think I might've already done it on this podcast, but I too am on anti-anxiety medications. Yay. And I personally have a lot of trouble 
uh, coming to terms with the fact that I needed them. But um, it, you can definitely do the work. And there's a great podcast called The Hilarious World of Depression, which helped me learn uh, why some people, especially creative people, take it. Uh, there's also a similar sports podcast that is associated with that, that talks to athletes who take anti-anxiety medication. Um, so there's resources out there to destigmatize it. So I appreciate you doing your effort on this podcast to yeah. destigmatize it. Well, I think it's great. I mean, I think there's just so many tools that people can use that they just don't know about. And the reality is like, you don't even have to, I think one of the fears is it's a forever thing. And, you know, I took them for a while and didn't, didn't after for a while. I've done meditation for a while, didn't, you know, I mean, some of the things are going to be with me forever, you know, sort of the daily prayers and some of that stuff. The more folks can talk about it and give their experience, because they're all different, the, the more useful it is for for any element of society, but particularly for our companies, where I just think it's just not something people talk about. I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about the Flink Group. So what do you offer service companies who want to partner with you? We're trying to build a group of the best service companies in the United States. Uh, we have five companies now in Seattle, Oregon, Denver, Houston, and Boston. And you know, there's now, when I first started this, I think the only people who were buying plumbing companies were me and ARS. And I don't think it was because I was being very smart. I didn't know what I was doing. And the last group of consolidators had all bought a bunch, grown their businesses, and then imploded. I used to talk to people. I said, are you just another consolidator? And I didn't know what they meant. And finally, after a while, I, they said, are you another consolidator? And I said, oh, you mean I'm going to overpay for your business, mess it up, and then sell it back to you for pennies on the dollar? And they said, oh, you do know what a consolidator is. I said, yeah, I'm not doing that. You know, with Flynn, I think there's three elements that are important. I mean, we have a ton of experience. Trevor has 10 years in the trades and helped run a company in Kansas City that he tripled in size and, and then started a company that uh, actually offered services to, to companies in the trades and is a next star expert, huge believer in our industry. I've been in this for 15 years and shared some of the elements of my story. And we, we or I have now grown businesses you know, two, three times as big while keeping the cultures safe and, and in some cases improve the cultures and did that with, you know, Bonnie and then start a wrench group. And, and now we're doing it again with Flint. So I've seen most of it before we've seen, we've seen most of it before and we can help navigate the good and bad for teams as we grow. And I think in particular, as we hit a rough patch, I think that know-how will be useful. Um, second thing is we're, decentralized. We have no middle management. It's a few of us at Flint. And then essentially all of our companies are standalone businesses with a strong brand and their own leadership team and their own resources. We have some shared functions, but not, not as much as some of the other entities on purpose. I mean, we think companies make better decisions the closer they are to the customer. And so the goal is not to have three layers of middle management. I'm not sure if you've seen office space, but you know, we don't have TPS <laughs> reports that we need sure, every sure. day. And we have a playbook that seems to work pretty well, but I say, Hey, here's the playbook. Take a look at the things that we think you could do. And you pick you, the owner, you know, you, the, the GMs or the people running the companies, you decide what would be most effective for you and we'll help you. And so we're really giving some folks a decent entrepreneurial opportunity, I think at these businesses. And the last thing I'd say is we have a very long-term focus. I mean, folks will tell you they have a long-term focus, but companies are regularly getting bought and the same company is getting bought and sold in as little as 12 months right now. Uh, usually it's about three years. Uh, so when we buy a company, we, we tend to do a lot of things that maybe some others wouldn't. We actually see our profits drop 
we hire key managers. We add service Titan and intact. They're not in place. We look for a bigger facility. So rents will go up like a hundred to 500%, which does not help with profit. It does help a ton with growth and eventually helps with profit, but not, not initially. And we upgrade the fleet and the goal is to build a really strong base so that the business is prepared for massive growth for a long period of time. And, you know, I, I, one of our vendors just actually refused to work with us, um, a year ago, because they said, we're just really, we're really reluctant to work with private ac- equity backed firms because we see them coming in and cutting costs and suggesting that you do the same with, and we'll pay you less money. And they actually just reached it back out to us because they'd worked with one of our companies and they said, oh my gosh, like what you're doing is wonderful. You're giving the companies the flexibility to spend what they need to spend and change what they need to change. And, you know, spending still the same and you're just much different. And, uh, so now they're going to work with all our companies. Um, so it's just a little bit different focus. And what tends to happen is we see a little dip in profit and then we build out this team and then in structure and then growth, organic growth just takes off and it's happening now and it hooks up and then it'll pull the profit up over time, which is fine. Uh, and we're seeing it at Flynn and it's, it's pretty exciting. The same thing happened at Guardian. I mean, Guardian's grown immensely and we have this amazing team and I mean, profits are up a ton, but they weren't for the first three years while we spent all this time getting everything ready for it. So basically, if you're looking for a PE partner who's pretty hands-off, allows you to do your own thing, and is there when you need them, and is in for the long haul, they should consider you. We will help immensely. Otherwise, we'll stay out of the way. And we've got a structure that allows owners who want to leave the chance to leave, or, or if they want to stay, they can be part of Flint and even own part of Flint. We're, we're pretty flexible. I mean... After 15 years, I've done, done this a bunch of different ways. And usually we can, typically the first question is like, what do you want? What structure would you like? What would you like to be doing? You know, what do you envision your life like? I mean, if you're 65 and you haven't been active in the business for three years, we're not going to ask you to do more than, you know, you can be part of our group with ownership or not. And otherwise, uh, we would love to be the long-term stewards of that company. Well, thanks, Colin. I have one yeah. more question for you, which is my favorite question of this whole show, if you had to choose a song to be the soundtrack of your life, what would it be? <laughs> this question is brutal. I, I was like, okay, I got to think of something really cool. Um, so I was like, oh, Adventures of a Lifetime by Coldplay or like, I used to listen to Pour Some Sugar on Me on repeat on a tape player. So I was like, oh yeah, for sure. But then I was like, what is that? That has nothing to do with my life. I just think the song's amazing. And the, and the drummer's is one-handed. Oh, it's so, a great song. Yeah. It's a great yeah. song. Yeah. Yeah. They, they got a one arm drummer. I mean, it's the <laughs> best. So, you know, I think, you know, there's two songs I was thinking about uh, at the risk of feeling like a little hokey. You know, there's a song called Broken Road by Rascal Flatts. It's like a slow country song. But for me, everything, I just think everything happens like it's supposed to. And, you know, this is kind of about like the path you take. You're not really sure where to lead. And, and you know, for me, a lot of the best things that's ever happened to me came out of some of the worst things. You know, whether it was the heart attack, uh, you know, my starting this small group of companies and having it not go very well through the recession, uh, almost quitting. And, you know, my wife convincing me just to hold on for six more months. And then we found Dallas and Houston and everything kind of changed. Um, even meeting my wife. I mean, the first time I met her in college, she thought I was an idiot and didn't want anything to do with me. And, and then it, you know, kind of worked out. So, so that's one. And the other one is this song Homegrown by Zach Brown Band. One, because... I saw them live and they're amazing, uh, particularly this song. I think it just, it just explains how to keep things simple and remember gratitude, you know? So 
like got everything I want, nothing that I don't, you know, it's just kind of like sometimes, sometimes if you're not being uh, fairly thoughtful about your, your life, it can seem like some things are very important, but ultimately, you know, it's important for me, at least I try and be very thoughtful about what is it I really want? Why is it important? And then I try and let the rest, just the noise, just stay noisy and not really bother me. I don't know. Zach Brown Band is pretty freaking talented. So I'm, I'm with you on that. And yeah, pour some pretty, sugar on me. Again, that is a great choice. Colin Hathaway, thank you so much for joining me on Toolbox for the Trees. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was wonderful. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Toolbox for the Trades. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I would love it if you left a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. This helps the show grow and get discovered by more listeners like you. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Are you looking to build a top-tier service company? Service Titan's Contractor Playbook is a handy guide to help you get where you want to go. Authored by the industry's greatest minds, this free all-in-one playbook will help you set your company up for success. Learn how to provide excellent customer service, establish your company's culture, market to new and existing customers, and more. Just go to servicetitan.com slash getplaybook to access the free digital guide. That's servicetitan.com slash getplaybook.